Hi there, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Smashing the Ceiling with me, Naomi Mella. On this podcast, we love to showcase the lives of women who have achieved amazing things in their careers, those who've got a really cool or unusual job, and some who've just had a really interesting life. Each week, I sit down with one woman to dig a little deeper into the how of it all. How did they get where they are? How did they pick themselves up when things didn't go right? And how their mentors, mistakes and motivations have led them to achieve the things they have. If you're looking for some inspiration for your career, this is the podcast for you. This week, I have been pretty busy over on Instagram. Last week's guest, Goalie Kalkaran, has inspired me to do a 30-day challenge. So I have started 30 days of Instagram videos this week, which is an A to Z of career inspiration for the month of May. Each day, I'll be posting in Instagram stories with a little snippet of advice and motivation for your career. So do check that out if you're interested. This week's guest is quite the phenomenal woman, though, and someone I am pleased to call a friend. As full disclosure, we do work together from time to time. Jane Green is someone with many a story to tell, from being headhunted to the Foreign Office aged 18, to spending years on the high seas in the Merchant Navy, to becoming one of the UK's most successful and prominent female astronomers. There aren't many of those, believe me. Jane is a fellow of the Royal Astronomical Society, who previously worked with the late, great Sir Patrick Moore, and was invited to be the inaugural speaker for the Sir Patrick Moore Memorial Lecture. She's written a best-selling book, appeared on the BBC's Stargazing Live, and recently co-hosted a phenomenally successful theatre show entitled Tour of the Universe, with the presenters of the BBC's The Sky at Night, who include Professor Brian Cox and the comedian Dara O'Brien. Look up live it, love it, she says. Jane's passion is making astronomy your passion, from getting outside to look at the night sky, to explaining complex scientific theories about the planets, our solar system and the universe. The scale of it all may seem a little overwhelming, but Jane delights in simplifying the mind-blowing concepts of the earth and beyond for everyone's enjoyment. But before we got stuck into the interview proper, Jane and I were just chatting about how life with its twists and turns can lead you down roads that you never really expected. I I love what you're saying about your life being quite mad though, because I look at my own life and think, oh yeah, that's been a bit mad too. And I look back at things that I've done and I think, God, that was a bit crazy. But you sort of just jump into things, don't you? Oh God. Oh, Naomi, bring it on. Honestly, I've been reading um, a number of books just recently by Ranulph Fiennes. Oh yeah. And one of them at the moment is about his heroes, you know, people who have done the most extraordinary things. And they're people that not many people would probably have heard about. Right. And I and he said, you know, he's what, 75 now. And I'm sure you know, he's done these amazing things. You know, he's done the Transglobe Expedition, unsupported to the Antarctic. Um, the oldest chap, you know, with a bus pass at I think 65 years of age summiting Everest doing all these things he's not going to stop he's raised millions of pounds for various charities and he said that his greatest horror would be to end up playing golf and if you stop you just vegetate and I thought oh you know what a hero and that's the way to be and if you don't do these things you're not able to sit down now and have a, a radio conversation are you with things to talk about And the same applies to you. It's got to be done, hasn't it? Do it, because life's too short. It's definitely true, Jane. And and actually, I love, I've read his autobiography, you know, Mad, Bad and Dangerous to Know, which I think is the best title of a book ever. Um, Brilliant. Yeah, so good. And um, I just read, remember reading that. It was a few years ago now, actually, and thinking, gosh, you can really do anything when you put your mind to it. You can. You can. And conquer your fear. Clamp your lid down on your imagination that creates all this anxiety and all the things that, you know, these voices in your head that can frighten you or prevent you from doing things. He's, you know, in one paragraph in his book called Fear, he totally confirmed to me that you just, you've got two paths that can activate in your brain. One that says, I can't do this. You mustn't do that. I'm too frightened to do this. Or you've got another pathway that says, oh, you know, excuse my language, sod it, just do it. And you can go one or other way in life. And his advice in just one paragraph at the very end of the book, pretty much, was saying, stop your fears, just do it. If you've got a canoe and you're going into a river with rapids, don't listen to the sound of the rapids. Don't look at the waves in the river. Get into that canoe, get on, deal with it. 
And then the very fact of doing it takes the anxiety away because you're just dealing with it. And I thought that's got to be the way to go in life, hasn't it? It is. And one of the things um, I've talked about lots on this uh, podcast, actually, is I read a book earlier this year called The Discomfort Zone, which is basically about putting yourself into uh, times of managed discomfort in order to stretch yourself and and particularly in the workplace and I definitely buy that about conquering your fears because I just think if you never do anything that scares you or challenges you you're not going to do anything in life at all exactly Damien you'll never learn you'll never learn will you you'll just get smaller and smaller and smaller and more and more frightened well on that note Jane should we hark back to the beginning should we just go back to early life and school and what did you think you wanted to be when you grew up I had absolutely no idea good I love that answer yeah (laughs) (laughs) no idea for a really really long time I have to say when I was in secondary school I I was a little bit naughty we had a we had a thing called a clock and it stood in the middle of the school and if you were naughty you had to stand under that clock and I do remember for most of my second year at secondary school I spent a lot of my time standing underneath that clock um, and then I had such a dreadful report that I was too frightened to take it home and that was a bit of a turning point that made me think crikey I've got to I've got to settle down and do you know something try and get my exams but as to what I wanted to do I had completely no idea but I did toy with the idea of going into the police force I don't know why. I think maybe it was to do with, you know, doing right and all that sort of thing. And then in those days at the school, they would um, arrange for you to do a week's work experience. So I had a week's work experience working in the Eastbourne Police Force, which um, meant going undercover with two women police detectives doing some, um, yes, some forensic work with uh, burglaries in houses. Um, And to be honest, it, it quite terrified me because I was quite a naive, shy, sheltered sort of girl, really. And uh, I found the whole experience quite frightening. And it didn't put me off, but it did ring a few alarm bells. And I thought, I'm really not sure that I actually want to do this. Um, Anyway, as it turned out, in those days, they were quite strict with their um, stipulations for your eyesight. And I failed the eyesight test. So it didn't actually go any further. But I do tend to think, thank goodness, because I think it would have been completely the wrong role for me. Totally, totally. I'm too soft and stupid. No, you're not. (laughs) (laughs) It's not for everybody, though, is it? But uh, one thing I always say about work experience, and and again, something we talk about quite a lot, is that it's as much about finding out what you don't want to do as what you do want to do. And if you can rule something out and say, okay, well, I've tried that, but I've crossed it off the list, then it's always a good place to begin, isn't it? It is. It is, definitely. You're absolutely right, Naomi. I think life is like that. It's not really knowing what you want to do, but it certainly is a case of knowing what you don't want to do. Mm. What happened after that? Okay, well, um, it's a little bit complicated because my uh, my mother died actually when we were very young. There were there were five children, two sets of twins, oh my goodness, and a, yeah, and a younger sister. And so we were all aged five and under when my mother died. She died when she was only twenty nine. Oh my goodness, Jane. So we were all sort of split up, sent to live with different relatives, um, and that went on for a number of years really until I was nine years old, and then I was removed from my dad and my three brothers and came to live in. Sussex with my grandparents and my younger sister so it's quite a convoluted thing um and we were you know we never had a lot of money it was really quite a struggle because my grandparents were retired so it was a big struggle for them as well and going to college was a bit of a luxury in fact for my grandparents it was unheard of and I don't know really how it came about but I think the school had some part to play and um, I was able to go to college if I did something practical. And of course, that practical thing was doing the full scale secretarial course. So doing the private secretary certificate, all the typing skills, the shorthand skills. Um, I loved English. I wanted to study English, but that was very much a thing on the side. So I got my practical skills and... Um, well, I mean, I have to say what, what, how the Foreign Office came about was because I was actually headhunted for it. Um, when I sat my shorthand exams, there were three separate exams at three separate speeds. And the number of entrants in each exam ranged from 63,000 in one set of exams wow. to 70, yeah, 75,000 
in the fastest speeds of the exam, so the fastest shorthand typing speeds. And they were international exams. I suppose this was quite a common um, certificate and qualification at that, at that time, was it, Jane? Like a lot of people took that. Yeah. Yes, very much. Yeah, very, it's what, it's what um, ladies did. It's what girls did. You know, it's, it's really a lot of what you were expected to do so that you could, you, you know, you would find work. Um, it wasn't what I wanted to do. I mean, I never wanted to go into secretarial work, but it was like the, you know, part of the, the uh, compromise if you were going to go to college. Um, so I sat the exams and I came top in all three. I didn't even realise, Naomi, honestly, when the results came through and you have these big certificates, uh, I only pulled the certificates halfway out the envelope. It said I'd passed. So I shoved the certificate back in and I didn't realise for weeks that I'd actually, you know, won first place. But as a result of that, um, the Foreign Office um, came scouting for those who'd got the fastest speeds. So I was one of them. And I would never have dreamt or had the courage, Naomi, to even think of such a thing of working in London, living in London. In fact, at that time, I think the furthest I'd been was 20 minutes on the train to the local town of Lewis. <laughs> so I was absolutely terrified. And how old were you then, Jane? About 18, was it? I was 18, 18 and really wet behind the ears, honestly. Never never really been any, anywhere. I'd had a very sheltered life, but as often happens, and I think has happened so many times in my life, I feel so blessed, really, that kind people have seen what you're like, seen the situation you're in, and they just step in and help. They make things possible for you. You know, they help you take those small steps that become the bigger ones. And my f best friend at school, Sally, her mum, um, was the one who organised everything, helped me with the applications, drove me up to London, settled me in um, and really got me going on that practical side. So, yeah, that's how I ended up working in the Foreign Office. My first job in the Near East and North Africa department, which was one of their, as you can imagine, one of their busiest departments because it was covering Egypt, Sudan, Jordan, Israel, um, Syria, everything where, you know, those countries where there was always something kicking off. And that's where I ended up. Um, but me, I absolutely hated the job. It's, it was so pressured. And I found that um, like every morning you would be taking shorthand down at really, really phenomenal speeds for hours. And then in the afternoon, you'd be typing these, the transcripts up, um, on electric or manual typewriters in those days. I'm showing my age. Um, and that would go on for hours. And it was always to tight deadlines because always by sort of six o'clock in the evening, there would be meetings at 10 Downing Street. And you would literally see your typewritten briefs being sent across into number 10. So the pressure was terrible. I had headaches every day. It's one of those jobs that sounds awfully glamorous, but the reality of it is, is somewhat different. It's amazing how many jobs that sound absolutely, utterly fabulous are a little yes. bit like that, isn't it? Yeah, definitely, definitely. Headaches every day is not sustainable, though. And that sort of pressure and stress is, eventually it starts to take its toll on you, doesn't it? Oh, it, it completely does. And I found, you know, living in London, I'm a bit of a country girl, I've learned. Um, I found living in London, you know, quite a struggle and quite a change for me who'd been, you know, very naive. Uh, and I thought, I, I just can't stay. I hate it. <laughs> I could have overanalyzed it and thought, no, you need to stay. You know, my dad was furious. My dad said, you know, you are, you're throwing up a chance to travel. You could get posted anywhere. But all I knew at that time, at that age, was that I completely hated it and I had to get out. <laughs> so I did. In just under a year, I left um, without a job to go to as well, which was a terrible thing to do on reflection, but I did it. Well, brave move. You know, I think I think sometimes that has to be lauded is that if you are really unhappy with what you're doing, the pressure to stay somewhere is is enormous because of mm. uncertainty and, and often finances, quite honestly. Yes, um, definitely. But, you know, taking that big brave move I do think sometimes that is the right decision for people because if it just leads you to become incredibly unhappy staying where you are, then sometimes just leaping is is a good thing. Obviously, it did work out in your case. Isn't it awful? We live our lives the wrong way around. Um, I say, you know, yes, take the leap. But I can imagine being 18, 19 and taking that leap. Great, big, scary move. I think for me, it was just the fact that I just hated it so much. I had to I had to leave. But now with with the wisdom of years, I'd still say the same thing. Honestly, I would say to someone else, if you really hate it that much, leave, because it's only when you take the leap 
that other doors open and they do open. The very fact of doing something will make another door open and you've just got to have courage. Just do it because things work out. And when you're young, you take things so seriously. You think it's going to be the end of the world. There's no other opportunities out there. It's complete rubbish. There's all these other opportunities out there just waiting. And the next one that was waiting for you was to go to sea, which again sounds incredibly glamorous. So how did you um, how did you end up sailing off into the sunset, Jane? Oh well, before I sailed into the sunset, I uh, did some temporary work um, after leaving the Foreign Office. So thank God for those secretarial skills because well, yes. they, really, useful qualification. they really did come yeah, in useful. Yeah, yeah. yeah, they were brilliant. They opened all the doors in my entire life. And then a temporary assignment came up working at Luton Airport Ooh, for McAlpine Aviation. So they used to operate executive jets, propeller planes, helicopters for politicians, VIPs, like A-list celebrities all over the world. And as soon as I stepped into that aircraft hangar into my noisy office, I thought, this is great. I'm going to love it. And I did. And I had four years there of doing work that I really enjoyed working for. I worked for the manager of the flight operations, loved it. And because he knew that I liked aviation, you know, I I could turn up to work at half past eight on a Monday morning. There could be a positioning flight on a 125 executive jet going up to Edinburgh or Paris or wherever. And he'd say, we've got a spare seat. Do you want to come? So I thought, yep, absolutely. Amazing. Love it. Oh, I did amazing things. And I actually ended up, don't tell anyone, but now we're going to tell the world. I actually ended up flying a twin squirrel helicopter, dual controlled, obviously, down the Thames at night. And I'll never forget steering the helicopter over Hammersmith Bridge. Oh my gosh, that's so James Bond. <laughs> It was mad. It was mad. You wouldn't get it nowadays, obviously, but fantastic. I mean, and I think if you're if you're interested and you're keen and you say that, if that message gets out there, people are so kind. You know, they just open up the doors for you and say, right, come on, do it. So that was the time at the airline. Uh, great time. Money was terrible. Had to pay the rent. Couldn't pay the rent. So I knew I had to try something else. And I thought, well, follow this. So, and I don't even know where the idea came from. I applied to a couple of cruise lines and within the month, I found myself standing on the deck of SS Canberra in Palma in the sunshine thinking, oh my God, what the hell have I done? (laughs) And it went from there. So that was, uh, so you joined the Merchant Navy, is that right? Yes. For people who don't know what that is can you just tell us how that's different to the royal navy and what you do when you're in the merchant navy James? okay well the obviously the royal navy is a military navy so and they've always been known as the royal navy the merchant navy is more of the sort of auxiliary side so it is the cruise ships it's the merchant ships that are literally the merchants are moving cargoes from one place to another around the globe. So cruise ships fit into that category. So there's two categories, the Royal Navy, which is the military side, and the Merchant Navy, which deals with merchant shipping. That includes cruise ships. So I was on the, the cruise ship side. So, um, yeah, so I, I started there doing administration work. That's how I got in. Again, my shorthand skills got me in. Um, and you work your way up. So you start as a half stripe officer. You do the like reception work, hotel side of work. And then if you stay at sea long enough, you earn more stripes. Um, so I stayed at sea what, 16 years and then ultimately um, ended up with three stripes um, and doing a variety of jobs along the way. Wow. And um, you must have some pretty good stories from from 16 years at sea. Oh, my God. (laughs) So many. Some probably can't go on a podcast. In fact, probably quite a few can't go on a podcast. But there's always situations where, well, okay, just one that one that leaps to mind when uh, when I was the hotel services manager on a cruise ship called Arcadia very nice big ship, 45,000 tons plus, a lot of passengers on it. And we had done the cruise pretty much. And we were in the penultimate port, which was Vigo in Spain. And um, it was a lovely sunny day. Most of the passengers were ashore. In fact, I would say 90% of the passengers were all ashore on tours. Very straightforward afternoon, sitting in my office, lovely, probably just had a cup of coffee, catching up with a few emails. And uh a passenger came down to reception and they said, God, you know, the, the technical side of the ship is just amazing. He said, it never ceases to amaze me how things operate. He said, I've just been sitting up on the top deck and your swimming pool that was full 
just emptied in minutes. He said, isn't that fantastic? Where does all that water go? Oh, God. <laughs> of course, what had happened, you know, the alarm bells start ringing. I'm thinking, mm, they never empty that quickly. And a massive pipe had burst. And all the water from that huge passenger swimming pool had emptied inside all the suite cabins in the forward mm. section of the ship. And they were all Yikes. under four feet of water and the water was still cascading down through the ship. Yeah, absolutely. And you can imagine these passengers coming back on board into their cabins and they were literally totally flooded out. And things like that happen not regularly, but they do, they do happen. I've been an operating officer on the quayside once in Cannes. And in Cannes, I don't know if you know Naomi, but sometimes you get these big mistral winds that blow up. Yeah. And it came, yeah. it came out of nowhere. And, uh, I, Canberra was anchored off. Luckily, the captain was with me. He'd been returning from a tour ashore. And we're both standing there to watch the ship turn around and sail away. And it literally just sailed oh, away God. and we were left there. There was no radio contact. We had no idea what had happened. And of course, they'd had to sail away because the anchor was pulling and it left all these passengers on the quayside. Oh, joy. <laughs> Absolute joy. <laughs> then what do you do? Say, sorry, everybody. Uh, yes, we appear to have a temporary glitch. Uh, we've just been left behind, but don't just, worry. We'll I'm sure they'll be back. Soon. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so many things oh, like God. that. So you many know, things. But then you think your people skills and your, you know, your conflict management skills and your negotiation skills and your capacity to uh, deal with problem solving yes. and, you know, all those other skills that you learn yes. uh, in those sorts of situations is, you know, you, you kind of think back to all those situations that you've been in, I'm sure, Jane, and and what you've drawn from that over a period of time. Oh, invaluable you know, they're all invaluable, aren't they? I mean, you see, um, and I think at the risk of it makes you feel a bit old sometimes, doesn't it? But often um, young people nowadays, they expect to be in positions sort of quite quickly. If a position's there, you can fill it. And I completely agree with that. You know, yes, put new people in. It's great. But I think what's invaluable are those life skills, dealing with so many different situations, so many different types of people, um, and learning those life skills are invaluable because they are what provide that experience, isn't it? That gives you the sort of the wisdom. And I think so much of life is just about learning things, isn't it? And the more you're exposed to, um, the more you can draw upon when the next situation confronts you. All of it is just part of that rich tapestry of life, isn't it? That um, the things that you learn as you go through life, as I'm sure you know as well, Naomi, it's just life, isn't it? And it takes time. But it's funny, isn't it, how being on a ship with, you know, several thousand people or whatever it happens to be is such a condensed microcosm of society in a way that living your normal life is not because everyone normally goes home and disperses at the end of a working day or whatever it happens to be and they disappear back behind their own front door and everybody is sort of somewhat disparate whereas you're spending two or three or four weeks or however long you happen to be away for all closed in confinement with one another on a board a ship that's floating in the middle of the ocean it does create quite a an environment that's that's so different to to normal life and in terms of your working life i can kind of imagine that it distills down quite a lot of experiences that you might not have in quotes normal life on land because because of the circumstances in true that's very true it gets very, it, it can become very intense and as you say, it is its own sort of microcosm, isn't it? You're kind of subject to your own rules and regulations and you're somewhat removed from, well, reality, I suppose. And yet you're dealing with reality as well. But yes, it's like its own little world. Interesting. Big world sometimes. Yeah, big world, big world. So <laughs> what I really wanted to talk about, Jane, because I'm fascinated by this, is how you got into astronomy. Oh. And, and how, how bizarre. Uh, yeah. I know it is bizarre, isn't it? So for listeners, I was just going to say, for listeners of this podcast, Jane and I do work together in horse racing. And I had no idea that Jane was also a fabulous, famous astronomer as well, who is on television for her job, uh, until someone else told me this recently. So please, Jane, will you enlighten me as to how you became an astronomer and how you got started? 
it started at sea, but not actually at sea. I was, um, and it's not a glamorous beginning either. Um, I was at home one summer on leave from a ship. And for some reason, I had pulled off the bookshelf a really dusty old book called The Universe, and it had belonged to my dad. And I happened to be sitting in the kitchen, flicking the pages. I mean, you know, by this stage, I've, I've done what most people do. I step outside, I look at the stars. Um, my friend Cheryl said to me, you know, she'd point a few things out. I had no idea what they were. I had no idea how big they were, how small they were, whether they were hot, cold or how far away they were. To me, they were just stars and they looked pretty and I didn't care about much else, really. They just looked pretty and that was it. And she had tried to educate me a bit, but excuse the pun, it was just went straight over my head. But then this particular leaf, I was sitting there flicking the pages of this book and suddenly I stopped because in the top right hand corner of one of the pages was a diagram and it was a diagram of the Milky Way galaxy. And there was this great big red arrow pointing to something which you couldn't see because it was so tiny. And it said the sun. And call me thick. And I do think I'm thick. And I do think I'm slow because I can't understand why it took me so long. I'm sure if I had a more inquiring mind, I would have got to it much, much sooner. So I hate the fact that I didn't. But for some reason, I had never considered or wondered where our sun, where our star is in space. When it dawned on me that it was in this galaxy, in this gathering of over 400 billion other suns, it totally blew my mind. It was like a, a major light bulb moment. And I thought, this is incredible. This is just amazing. Our sun, which is so big, is actually so small. Mm. Um, and I just started reading and reading and reading and reading. I went back to sea. We always had cocktail parties out on deck in those days. Ooh, lovely. And so I'd be standing outside, like somewhere in the Caribbean, for example. And... That sounds terrible, Jane. <laughs> oh, and, <laughs> yeah, it was work. Honestly, it was work at the time. It really was. And instead of standing around making small talk, I was looking up at the stars and pointing things out. And this went on and on and on. And then I was on one particular small ship called Victoria. And the captain on there, who was a really lovely chap, Captain Chris Sample, he heard what I was doing and he said, I'm having a small party on the bridge wing. He said, come up and talk about the stars. So uh, I was terrified, Naomi, absolutely terrified. And it's one of life's terrifying moments to be standing on the bridge wing of a ship, holding a microphone, looking at the stars, surrounded by people thinking, what the heck am I going to say next? Because I, I just almost drew a blank and I think it was nerves. But like you say, I, I got over it, swallowed the nerves, did it and then ended up doing a few more. Then I went to another ship, a much bigger ship. And then this captain, Captain Rory Smith, he got wind of what I did and said to me, can you deliver a talk, you know, a proper lecture inside the ship? Right. So so uh, again, I was just, I was so scared. I was so terrified. This is one of my pivotal moments, really. So terrified of doing it. And uh, he asked me to do it in the theatre that was at the forward end of the ship. And it was a 500 seat wow. theatre. Yeah. And, and I was... I'd got set up, so about an hour and a half before, so everything was set. I left the theatre and I was so nervous about going back into the theatre because, I, A, I was nervous about doing it and, B, I was nervous that no one would turn up. And I left it to the last possible moment to turn up. I was convinced that there'd be hardly anyone there. I went to the doors and there was no one outside them absolutely no one around and I thought no one's turned up so I thought because no one's turned up they've locked the theatre and that's it and I honestly believe that and I turned to go back to my cabin thinking oh well at least I don't have to do it you know I thought I've dodged a bullet because I was so scared had this horrible nerve shooting down my left arm into my hand horrid um, and as I turned around four passengers um, came towards me and uh they opened the door. They had to give it a big old yank, but they managed to open it. And the reason why they couldn't get it open was because there were so many people in there. I had no choice. I just had to get in. You're dealing with it. Your fears, you're dealing with it. And all the fears that I had as I walked down towards the stage, they were going because by that stage, you had to get up, get up on that stage 
and deliver the talk. And I was terrified, but I knew, Naomi, when I stood up there and I was sharing a subject that so inspired me and still does that I think is so amazing that you I found the words and I just started and I just got going um and it was a real turning point because the, the passengers they appeared to really enjoy it um and when you've done it once that's it you can do it again and it went from there mm. so you um were obviously self-taught in the beginning how have yes. you gone on to kind of extend your astronomy education Jane yep <clears throat> yeah, exactly. you're now a well, fellow that... of the Royal Astronomical Society, no less. Yeah, yeah. Well, I knew that if um, if I was going to do it sort of professionally, uh, I needed to get some professional qualifications. So I studied through the Open University. So I did okay. various degree courses in astronomy and planetary sciences. Um, so and it actually put me off astronomy for a while because I was never very good at maths at school. Uh, I had to have a foundation course before I could even start doing the OU courses. Um, so I studied like crazy, long distance learning, um, got my qualifications, went back to sea, didn't even want to think about communicating astronomy for a while because the maths really did put me off. But then I, when I used to be out on the decks late in the evening, I used to hear people um, walking around the ship, you know, couples, and they'd be looking up at the night sky and they were saying, oh, look at this, look at that. And they had, they clearly had no idea what they were looking at. And I thought, no, they need to know because they want to know. You know, once they realise, they'll, they'll love it all the more. So um, I started doing lecturing professionally. When I left the sea, the company invited me back to be a guest speaker. So I became a professional guest speaker. Um, and then really one thing led to another. Somebody heard about what I did. A publisher contacted me to do a book, which became a bestseller, the um, Haynes Astronomy Manual. That became a bestseller internationally, still is. Um, it's had several reprints and a new edition. Um, and then I've been writing for magazines in America, um, the BBC Sky at Night magazine here, um, and then lectures ashore. And it's just really gone from one thing to the next thing to the next thing. It's got its own kind of momentum. So, yeah, that's how it all took off. And you've been on um, with some of the people from the BBC Sky at Night, which obviously was a massive hit in the UK. Um, yes. Why do you think astronomy has had a resurgence you know the last probably five years has suddenly had an increase in popularity with you know um professor brian cox and dara O'Brien and people like that getting involved what is it about it do you think that appeals to people um because it really is such an, an amazing an amazing subject you know it really really is um i think the overriding thing that comes across when i give when i give talks um is that so many people don't know. They don't know about it. And crucially, they think they don't want to know about it. Um, but they do. They completely do. I believe it so much. Um, in fact, I mean, my biggest motivation is the fact that I think every human being on this planet, every human being should have some appreciation of how immense it is out there and therefore how tiny and fragile and inconsequential our planet is and how brief and fragile our lives are and the lives of all the creatures are also on this planet. I mean, it's totally mind-blowing. The size of everything is still mind-numbing to me. When I communicate it, I get you know, excited about it because I think this is going to blow your mind. <laughs> and for those people who come to the subject and are helped to come to the subject, because it can be, it can be boring, actually. It can be dull and boring and difficult. But if you put it in a way um, that helps people to understand it, and there are ways, when it dawns on people, when they have that epiphany moment like I did, it totally blows their minds and they completely love it. So I think now with the fact that we've got the internet, there's a television, as you say, with Brian Cox, it's putting it out there. When people realise, they get more excited about it and more of it is communicated. And I think we're in a world where there is so much information now that I think it's just, you know, the the statistics alone you're going to be exposed to it more and then it has its own momentum so I think putting it on the telly with Brian Cox was a major step um, and then because there's theatre tours now um, it's out there isn't it great films about it so um, yeah I think social media 
the internet, the, all the technology that we have, all the missions that are taking place now as well. You know, the first time that we've seen Pluto, the first time we've seen these views of the north and south poles of Jupiter, the first time we've been sending probes out to the asteroid belt and beyond. You know, there's all these firsts, the possibility of going to Mars. Mm. You know, it's exciting, isn't it? it Rockets is. going out there. It's got an enormous momentum now. And because there is the medium to communicate that, that momentum is increasing all the time. But People want to know. That's the key thing. They really do want to know. Mm. And, um, you know, we, you and I are lucky. We both live in rural areas where if we walk outside of our house, we can probably see the stars on a clear night. But a lot of people who live in big cities or major towns might not have that luxury. What do yes. you sort of suggest for people in urban living where it's quite, you know, honestly, it's quite difficult to look up and see anything other than light pollution in the sky. Mm. Um, what's your take on that, Jane? Firstly, I think that's incredibly sad. And yes, it doesn't just stop. Um, well, apparently, a recent study has shown that 85% of the people on this planet will never see what the Milky Way galaxy looks like, Gosh. for example. So, I mean, you can see, if you're in a dark sky area, you can see that white arc of those hundreds of billions of stars arcing over your head from one horizon to the other, effectively sort of splitting the sky in two. And if you're in an area where there's no light pollution at all, that would blow your mind to see it. I've never seen it myself. It's on my bucket list to do, to go somewhere where you can truly see it as it is. And it's mind-blowing because it, it's just so amazing. But as you say, if you live in a town, I mean, I live in a, in a village, and in the last 20 years, the increase in light pollution means I can't see as much as I used to when I was a teenager. So if you live in a town, as you say, Naomi, you, the skies are wiped out. You can maybe only really see a handful of the main stars. But... I think nowadays more people can get out of towns a bit better. It's publicised. There are dark sky areas in this country where you're going to see a lot more than you could if you were in a town. I think that urban planners are looking towards changing the lighting regulations so the light pollution is reduced. Raising awareness for children in schools is a massive part of what I do and what many other people are doing. And I think that creates that desire to go and see it. And I think schools organise trips now where they go out into the woods, out into national trust sites, dark sky reserves. So more and more children, I think, especially are getting the opportunities to get out there and see what the sky can look like. So that's a, that's a fantastic thing because children want to learn and they love the subject and the subject is being taught in schools now. They love it. They soak it up. So I think it's getting better all the time, but a lot more work needs to be done. Yeah. Well, if people are interested, I will put some links for dark sky sites on the website so people can actually go and find where somewhere near you might have a dark a dark site for you to go and look at the stars and if people and, and if you go to a dark site or into your garden if you're fortunate enough to live in a place where it's reasonably dark um i know normally when you give your lectures chain you've probably got some um you know pictorial guidance along with everything else but what do you suggest people look for like how if you're going to go outside apart from looking up and appreciating what's in the sky how how would you suggest people go about looking better understanding better do you know i think in the first instance uh a simple thing would be to purchase an inexpensive monthly magazine for example like the bbc sky at night magazine because in there they have a pull out star guide planet guide moon guide that gives you all the information that you're going to need for not just that month but all the other months but in particular for that month it will show you what the sky looks like with the major stars in it and anything else of interest. Um, get yourself a little torch with a, a red light torch if you can, because if you've got a white light torch, it blinds your eyes a little bit. You need to keep things as dark as possible. And then go to a relatively dark sky site or a good one. Take your little map with you. Take your little torch and just look up, look up. And you can locate those constellations, those patterns of stars. They're there for all to see. If you've got a pair of binoculars, even better. If you've got a small telescope, that's great, but you don't need one. You can see so much 
with just a medium-sized pair of binoculars. They're amazing. Um, so that's the thing to do. Or you can go on the internet, of course, and if you just Google what's in the sky to see tonight, they will show you maps of what is visible in the sky. You can print those off and take that outside. And those are just the basics of what you need. Mostly, it is a matter of going outside with your map. iPhones do it as well. There are oh, numerous apps that show you what's in the sky and you can just point and it will tell you what you're looking at. So they're great as well. But you really can't meet, beat um, a basic star map. Okay. Step outside, give your eyes about 20 to 30 minutes to adjust because then your pupils will open up that much more. So you're going to see a lot more things. Um, and then just look up and slowly feel your way around. Get to know the night sky. Excellent. Excellent. That's so cool. And it's amazing, isn't it? It's, you know, it's taking the time to actually look up mm. is something that we we just don't really do too true it's amazing and and how about um so when you started in the astronomy world jane obviously sir patrick moore was somebody who was big in the business at that stage um were there many other women around how did, was it being a woman in the sort of field that you're in and how has that changed over a period of time do you think good question good question naomi and um for many years, uh, in fact, I did a talk about this recently, so I, I've read quite a bit about it and it's quite fascinating how there have been so many women who are the unsung heroes in astronomy. They have been doing amazing work in researching stars um, and not many people know about it. I mean, one that leaps to mind is um, Dame Jocelyn Bell Burnell. Oh, yes, She's received yes. the recognition now, but she was the one key in discovering, in fact, she was the lady that discovered radio pulsars back in the 60s, it was. And on the research paper, um, her name did appear, but it appeared at the bottom. And two of her research colleagues received, who were male, received the Nobel Prize for their work, and she didn't. Hmm. Um, and there are quite a few examples of ladies. Uh, Vera Rubin, an American astronomer, was the same for many years. The work that she did on dark matter was not recognised, um, even though she was proven to be right. And dark matter now is, a, you know, an enormous part of astronomy and cosmology. She had an enormous role, but not many people knew about it. And there are so many others, um, many, many females in astronomy. And of course, recently, um, there was the Hollywood film Hidden Figures yeah, I love about Katherine Johnson. Oh, fantastic film, isn't it? I would highly recommend that book to people. It's a br there's a book before there was a film, and that is a brilliant, brilliant book. Which I it is yeah, so good. It, you're absolutely right, Naomi. Brilliant book. But they most people, in fact, people didn't know about these ladies that were responsible for so much of the calculations that took part in the Apollo missions. And if it hadn't been for her. Um, John Glenn wouldn't have achieved his orbital, his suborbital flight. He wouldn't have done it. It was her calculations. He trusted her rather than the computer. But there are so many other ladies then and now. But now things are better. There's not enough women in astronomy, um, but there are women actively communicating that fact and working on it. Still not enough. Nowhere near enough. It's so difficult getting girls into sciences. I think they think sciences are quite boring. They are. It is a male dominated field. Um, but it's getting better, thank mm. goodness. Mm. And if people are interested in astronomy and, you know, potentially a career in that sort of thing, Jane, what advice would you give people who are interested in what you've been saying or in anything else along the way? Well, firstly, believe in yourself. And if you're interested in astronomy or getting into astronomy or any of the science fields, concentrate on your science subjects, obviously at school and college. I think that um, schools, the, the schools that I've um, presented in are doing a fantastic job, actually, at encouraging girls into the sciences. Join an astronomy club as well. Um, there are quite a few of those. Um, and just hang on to your dream, really, because the opportunities are out there. You can find a way. Um, and the Internet, again, is always an invaluable, invaluable source. So I often ask people, Jane, about um, the three M's in their career, which is their mentors, their mistakes and their motivations, because I think we learn a lot from our failures. First of all, we learn a lot from the people that encourage and nurture us and we all need something to keep us going in our career. So have you got anything on any of those? Um, I love to hear about people's failures, incidentally. I feel a failure all the time. Oh my God, you're not I'm a like, failure. She's Louise. No, 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 you do. You feel a failure. I feel a failure all the time, but I suppose that's quite a, a motivating force, really. In terms of mistakes, um, 
Well, mistakes are great things to learn from, aren't they? It's like I listened to a podcast recently with um, Richard Branson and uh, the interviewer was saying, oh, I suppose, you know, you don't make any mistakes. You're so successful. You don't make any mistakes. And he turned around and said, my God, I make mistakes all the time. And we all do. We're all human. We all make mistakes. But the great thing about mistakes is what you do when you've made one, isn't it? How you learn from it and move on. And you're not going to learn if you don't if you don't make those mistakes. But the biggest regret I think I have, um, and I'm always saying it, um, I wish when I was younger that I had read so many more books. I wish I'd got into reading when I was really young and then just kept on reading. I really wish I had opened up the world to my tiny screwed up little mind that I had when I was a little girl and when I was growing up. What I should have been doing was you know, getting over that, getting into books and just finding out about the planet that we're on. Um, And I just wish I knew so much more because I'd read more when I was younger so that I would have had better informed, a better informed mind to make decisions about what I wanted to do. I mean, going back to the beginning, I never had any idea what I wanted to do because I never had any thoughts in my head, Naomi. I just, I didn't have any original thoughts. I didn't know anything. I was like a big blank canvas for so many years. And oh my God, I regret that so much. I really do. But everybody, but everybody's a blank canvas, Jane, when you're young. And and I think actually that, you know, that's one of the beauties of being young is that you are you're open to doing lots of different things because you're not yet tarnished by cynicism or you're you're uncomplicated by life's experiences and the and the way that they've affected you and you, I think you know one of the beauties of of youth is that you believe that anything is possible and that you yes. can do anything god that's completely right but i think and you know as we get older we're only then limited by our own uh, expectations of ourselves because you you limit yourself in your own head as you get older because you think that what you've achieved so far is the limit of your achievements which is not true at all but it I, I think it becomes increasingly difficult to change what you're doing as you get older because you you box yourself in you've done a lot of wonderful things in your life which actually I would say that most other people would consider to be very inspiring Jane and, oh, well, and that's that actually great. that's great you know you have leapt and grabbed life with both hands and and taken it on board you know so um, and what about mentors within astronomy have have you had people who have really helped you along the way because I often um you know we often talk about this theory of you can't be what you can't see and having people who are um inspirations to you or people who show you that it's possible to do what you want to do in the way that you now do to younger people. Did you have anyone who said to you, yes, you can do this, I will help you, particularly in the world of astronomy? Yes. Uh, Not so much with um, astronomy, although astronomy was part of it. Uh, I have to say, you know, 1,000%. I have a really best friend who is like the mum that I never had really, Cheryl, um, Cheryl Lutering, Hungarian. She's got a hell of a mind. And she came into my life when I was just a teenager, quite a mixed up teenager, totally lacking in confidence, Naomi. I mean, just terrible. I had no idea about myself at all. And she came into my life about that time. And she's always been there. And she's been that person who has achieved so many things for herself and is so inspirational in the way that she sees the world and she was a person, you know, who always read, has read books copiously um, and can impart so much knowledge. And she was always there for me at that time where I guess I just needed someone to say, come on, you know, you can do this. Or in some cases, give me a good kick up the backside to get doing something. And I, there were Many times where she, you know, she has saved me when I've not had the confidence. She's been completely inspirational. She's always been that kind of person that said, yes, you know, you can do this. You can do that. But don't feel that you've got to. There's a 
big world out there. Go out there. Go and explore it whilst you're young enough, whilst you can. You know, it's there for you. I'd had a really sort of small life and I had that kind of personality as well. And she knew that if I didn't go forward, I would go back and it would probably be a really bad move. And it it had lessons for me to learn. You know, I had edges to knock off. She knew my confidence needed to grow. And she saw that as a really good way of me getting it. And if it hadn't been for her doing that, there wouldn't be any astronomy. Definitely there wouldn't have been. Um, I wouldn't have travelled the world because I probably still would have been too frightened to do so. I wouldn't have met all those amazing people that I've met over the years, most of whom have been so kind and opened doors for me. And so much wouldn't have happened for me if people hadn't been kind and caring along the way. So I owe it to her because she's been an enormous inspiration. And if she hadn't kicked my butt, I wouldn't have done the things that I do. Whenever I get frightened about something, whenever I truly believe I can't do something, she said, yes, you can. Go on. How amazing to have a supporter with that kind of faith in you. What a gift in life. Jane has most definitely made the most of every opportunity that has been afforded her and pushed open doors along the way. I really hope that you can find somebody who gives you that kind of support. And if you're looking for mentors or interested in that kind of thing, we will be talking about that in future episodes. Um, Jane, you've been an amazing guest. Thanks. Oh, thank you. Gosh, you've been, a, you've been an amazing interview. It's just lovely, isn't it? It makes you realise the things that you've done that you've totally forgotten about. I had to sort of rack my brains because, as you say, you think it isn't anything. And then when someone asks you, you think, oh, my gosh, I'd forgotten about that. And so it's great. So it's, a, it's a, an inspiring experience, actually. So thank you. And thank you for listening today. I hope you enjoyed it and are inspired to get out there and look up at the sky. There is loads of info online regarding astronomy and the night sky. I'll put some links on the show page, but the BBC Sky at Night programme is on monthly if you're interested, with episodes available on the iPlayer wherever you are in the world. Jane's website is janegreenastronomy.co.uk and her links to social media are there. That's it for today, but as ever, if you've got any comments, suggestions or feedback, drop me a line. I love to hear from you. Please subscribe if you haven't already and feel free to leave us a nice review on your favourite podcast site as it helps others to find us. But more importantly, if you enjoyed it, spread the word as word of mouth is still the most powerful form of advertising. You can follow us on Twitter at Smashing Ceiling and on Instagram at Smashing The Ceiling and we'll hopefully see you next time.